Welcome to the world of unsexy. From scrap metal to timber, estate planning to freight pooling, this show is a meandering exploration of just how sexy unsexy industries can be. I'm your host, Elaine Zelby, investor at SignalFire and eternally curious human being. In this podcast, we'll peel back the layers of niche and esoteric markets, understanding the history and looking at the future through the eyes of the pioneering entrepreneurs willing to bring technology and exponential improvements to these often overlooked spaces. Join me on a fascinating journey into the unsexy. Welcome, everybody. My guest today is Leji Gafur co-founder and CEO of Future Fields, a company creating the future of food by developing custom growth media solutions for the cellular agriculture industry in a cost-effective and scalable way. Welcome to the podcast, Leji. Thank you. I am very glad to be here. Well, I will say that cellular agriculture is not an industry I have a ton of experience in, so I'm excited to pick your brain and hear a little bit more But would love to just have you start off with, you know, you've worked across a variety of different industries. So walk me through your life and career that led you to this place to get interested in cellular agriculture. Yes, the hard question right off the bat. Uh, So for me, uh, a lot of this is actually very personal to me. Uh, I have worked many, many different jobs. Uh, I really feel that we have to do more then hope things will be all right uh, in the future is the honest answer. Uh, And we have to actually act to make that happen. Um, There's three of us as co-founders, but each of us have our own individual motivations combined into a a single vision. But for myself, uh, I have been everything from a drywaller to a retail business owner. I have been working full-time for 20 years Uh, I have been living on my own since I was 14 uh, here in Canada. Uh, And part of the thing that comes with that is taking every job that you can. Uh, One thing in relation to cellular agriculture that was very pivotal for me uh, is that I grew up on a farm here in southern Alberta uh, in Canada. And I had my hands in the dirt, so to speak. Uh, We had gardens, we had animals, but we were still very poor. Uh, So when it comes to terms like food security, which are usually used in a vague tone at conferences, uh, I am familiar with what it feels like to actually not eat for a week or two properly, or to feel... Uh, the shame that people here in North America might feel of standing in a grocery store line, uh, counting out change for a loaf of bread while other people are waiting behind you, uh, staring at you. Um, so I've always had a, this connection to food uh, for multiple reasons. Uh, and in my multiple careers, I've always gravitated towards trying to do something better, Uh, A, because I had to, uh, and B, that was the way that I found uh, to always push myself forward. It's like the real kernel of origin is when I was helping, just working in regular old stores, uh, 
well over 15 years ago now, uh, is helping those business owners when they would ask a question, hey, like, uh, I'm not sure what to do about this order. What do you think? And I was just a regular teen salesperson. Uh, but that is where I actually really started to discover like, hey, uh, some of the stuff I learned in life and being able to help with these problems is a path forward. Uh, I have been a in health research. Uh, I have been in uh, user experience and design. I have had my own consultancy and I've worked with startups uh, of varying sizes from new ideas to uh, places that have product market fit. Uh, and that is really what uh, led me to where I was today uh, to be able to continually try to take that entrepreneurship journey seriously uh, because I, upon reflection, especially over the last few years of working with Future Fields, is that is what I have had to do uh, for a lot of the time, uh, leading me to where I am now. Wow, you've had quite the life experience and you know, obviously the grit and determination of getting you to where you are now. You know, there's three kind of necessities in human life. One is, you know, food, shelter, and healthcare. And you've kind of touched too, but having that real visceral relationship with food and the food economy, I'm sure is really driving, driving force behind future fields. Yes. Yes, we take that very seriously. It is not a matter of just us putting out a fancy new product. Uh, but to actually make cellular agriculture a reality uh, and have an effect towards a real agricultural revolution to help food security for the future. What was your very first job when you were 14? I was a painter being paid in cash under the table, <laughs> as one does when you're young. Uh, I was painting fences and houses. Got to make a living. I uh, I worked at ice cream shops and a popcorn shop, so I I understand. I don't think a lot of women were were painting. But um, shifting gears into the space you're in now, can you define a little bit for the audience what cellular agriculture actually is and means? Yes, the super basic way I like to describe it is cellular agriculture is is the technology of making animal products without the animal at a very high level. Uh, at Future Fields, we focus on the food that you need to feed the cells in this industry uh, to grow the material. Uh, so what will happen is a company will take a sample, let's say, of beef. I'm very much generalizing. They will take that sample. They will find the cells uh, that they want to isolate. Uh, they will nurse them, uh, and they will feed them with something called growth media. Uh, those cells can multiply and grow. They will put it into a bioreactor or perhaps onto a scaffold if they're making a particular product. Uh, and then at the end of all that, they end up with an edible product. Uh, but the process does vary quite heavily uh, company by company, and everyone has their own unique secret sauce. You know, I think if you asked the majority of people in North America five years ago, have they ever tried lab-grown meat? Most people would have no idea what you're talking about. 
And over the last few years, that's dramatically changed. Most people have tried Impossible Burger or Beyond Beef or some form of lab-grown seafood or fish or things like that. Mm -hmm. Do you have a sense of what, either from a technological perspective, a consumer you know, opinion or demand perspective, what shifted? And why are we in this place now where there is so much both demand from consumers, but also companies building in the space? There are multiple reasons. Uh, one is that the products themselves are identical uh, to the normal product, all the way down to the cellular level, hence really the magic in it. Uh, I believe that uh, in North America, especially, a lot of consumers are recognizing the issues with our current food system. Uh, global demand for animal products and high-value proteins are growing, increasing pressure on the livestock industry, as an easy example, which was especially highlighted with COVID-19. Uh, for many people, that may have been the first time they went to the grocery store and seen an empty, uh, and it may have been one of the first times they've actually had to really think hard, if these shelves don't come with food soon, what am I actually going to do about it? Uh, that the impact of climate change, which is more and more becoming an issue, uh, that is something that more people are becoming more aware of and taking it more seriously, uh, and especially consumers, and that is leading to different behaviors. On the industry side, uh, all those points are very prevalent in every company, uh, and it really is the time for everyone to push to make this industry real to try to address those problems. So food has a very emotional place in most people's lives. And it's also a way that people tend to classify themselves and kind of form their tribes. So people are vegetarian or vegan or pescatarian or all these different things. Now, this is kind of a new category that might still use animal cells, but doesn't involve harming animals or killing animals. How are people classifying this type of product today? Are people who are vegetarians willing to eat something that still used animal cells to be grown? What are you seeing on that evolve? This is still an open question. Uh, and the real answer is it's still going to be up to every individual. Uh, at a high level, and again, a generalization, and that there is a mix. Uh, in conversations that I have, uh, individuals who identify as vegetarian, it honestly varies. If their motivations for uh, leading that way of life uh, and eating those types of products really come from an animal rights perspective, uh, it fits very well. Uh, and then that part of the equation is removed. Uh, part of the challenge with it is navigating uh, how to incorporate that into your own cultural practices, especially outside of North America, uh, which can be difficult to take into account, uh, especially for us as a small company here in Canada. There's a very big world out there, uh, and there are a lot of different cultures and how people relate to food. Uh, so we try to take that all into account, uh, working with as many partners as we can on that. Um, but I could see this being able to be accepted uh, by the majority 
because it is physically the same. Uh, so it does not need to detract uh, from the connections. This is an area I'm really interested today. to watch how it evolves because it's always a very contentious debate among people and just, you know, really how people identify. I, so I heard, and tell me if this is a false uh, rumor, but I heard that your very first uh, attempt at this company was actually trying to do a chicken nugget uh, and build a lab-grown chicken nugget. Is that uh, is that true? And how did that experiment go? Yes, uh, that is 100% true. And then we started as a consumer-facing company. Uh, so when myself, Mangeline, made the leap, uh, we were focused on producing chicken and wanted to get that out. Uh, between the combination of the three of us, we were fortunate to have the background and skills to actually make that happen. And we were successful at the MVP stage. So it is a picture that we share around liberally when you're presenting of a little chicken nugget. Uh, we were able to go through the whole chain from uh, starting with collecting a raw cell sample from a chicken here in Edmonton all the way to that cube of chicken that was in the picture. And the problem that we ran into, which is the same issue that every company ran into at the time, was the cost per pound. So at the time, that chicken that we made was still $3,000 per pound. And it was mainly due to the cost of traditional growth media uh, supplemented with FBS to be specific. And that is what led to us needing to pivot to work on that problem for ourselves. And through, fortunately, through being able to go to Singapore, take part in the Grow Accelerator, uh, and speak with many other people in the industry who made the decision to pivot, focus on that most important ingredient for lab growing meat, uh, which is why we were producing. To your point, I've heard this story multiple times. I took a look at a variety of companies in this space. And one uh, based near me, I went to their lab and they were doing a lab grown type of seafood. And I actually got to try it. I got to see how they grew it. It was so, so cool. And we had this long conversation. At the end, I asked, how much does it cost to produce a pound? And they also came back with the exact same $3,000 per pound number, which is obviously not commercially scalable. So I guess that brings us to what you guys are doing at Future Field. So how are you enabling that price to come down? And what do you think is required to really get it to something that is commercially viable? Yes. So traditionally, the expensive part of growth media is the growth factors. So the things that help and signal cells to grow and multiply. But there's two parts to growth media. There is the basal media, which is simple things like salts, sugars, amino acids, and these growth factors. Traditionally, to produce these growth factors, you're doing what's called recombinant protein production. So this traditionally takes place in single-celled systems, such as bacteria, yeast, or mammalian cells as well. But efficiency in these systems is inherently limited, and it requires really significant capital expense with something like yeast, where it is very tiny, in the form of bioreactors for that yeast. So your costs end up scaling, because to get the usable amount of your growth factor or protein of interest out of something that is like yeast, you also have to scale that yeast up. So the more you need, 
the bigger that expense becomes. Uh, in order to improve those limitations, uh, we came up with an entirely new approach rather than trying to work with the constraints of the traditional systems that required a lot of equipment. So we have a novel platform for producing these growth factors, as we like to describe it, utilizing elegant molecular machines found in nature. Uh, I can't reveal yet exactly what it is, but what I can say uh, is uh, we have shipped out product to customers uh, and we are already on the path to supplying it, uh, working our way towards scale to have products that are released uh, by our customers that are close to uh, what they're used to paying now. That's incredible. Are there certain types of either meat or seafood that lend themselves better to the solution you're providing in terms of you know, being able to grow, grow this at scale? Honestly, I would not be able to comment on that directly, but what I could say is there is a new company that I run across every month that is working on something new. If it is a animal product or something that would traditionally made be using an animal product, uh, there is a company that ends up popping up that is working on it. Uh, a more interesting case uh, to kind of like think about the possibilities is in materials. Uh, so uh, things like leather or things like collagen were uh, the craziest thing I found so far, uh, which there is no company for yet, is animal products were traditionally used in creating tires uh, in many cases. So there's a lot of different use cases for B2B inputs as well uh, that could be made using these uh, replacement materials that are traditionally derived from animals versus just the consumer food products. Uh, but there is a lot of both. Have you seen the company that's doing mushroom-based leather for apparel and clothing and handbags? It's pretty incredible. Yes, the mycelium and mushroom approaches are very interesting. I am glad to see, honestly, as many approaches to these alternative products as possible, regardless of the source, because we need it. Any other uh, kind of crazy or out there companies you've run across or kind of products that people are trying to, to grow? Oh, I wish I could comment on that, uh, but definitely keep an eye out uh, as I am very confident over this next year, you will see more exotic products that will be made uh, publicly available or at least a press release from companies around wait. the world. The next thing you're going to see is in a lot of these big cities across the globe, these pop-up restaurants where everything is, you know, from lab-grown or from non-traditional ingredients. I think that'll be kind of cool to watch that evolve. Yes. Yes. I 100% agree with that. I'm looking forward to it. What are some of the other large gaps that still exist today outside of just the growth medium piece? Are there other major things that have to change for this to become something that is truly accessible by the broader population? Like any other really new technology, it is a complex system and there is more than just one part. Uh, growth media for us is, of course, what we're focusing on uh, to bring that price down. Usually people also include fetal bovine serum as part of that equation. Uh, serum is an entire thing in and of itself. Uh, 
of whether or not that can or should be continued to be used as it is a derivative of blood. Uh, bioreactors and scaling those up are another easy example uh, where there's room for other business to business companies to innovate and create a new startup in that space for this industry uh, to really help with that scale up. Uh, and regulatory is also a common one uh, that comes up. Fortunately, we have seen a lot of progress, especially in countries like Singapore, where you can currently go to a restaurant and eat chicken made using these processes. Uh, and I know that the Canadian and American governments are also taking a hard look at this. Uh, so I'm confident that will happen. Uh, and really, those sets of things will allow more products to be able to release to consumers and it'll ultimately be at that point when consumers are able to eat high quality, good tasting products that they can afford uh, where stuff will pick up. Uh, and working with my customers, I can confidently say that uh, taste and cost is always the first consideration. Uh, so I am looking forward to seeing that happen. Yeah, I, I definitely believe that. What have you seen in terms of, obviously, I'm based in the US, so my lens is the FDA, and I'm sure there's an equivalent in Canada. But from the regulatory body perspectives, how um, forward thinking have they been on this? And has Impossible and Beyond Meat really pushed the bounds, uh, given their kind of mass market now? I can say that we do work closely with regulators, and they are actively thinking about it. To the second half of the question, I apologize. I'll have to uh, not comment any further on that no worries. part. No worries. Well, I'd also love to hear your take on what are some of the most common misconceptions that the average Joe consumer has about cellular agriculture? Hmm. I think the main one is that it is interpreted as synthetic. You will see this word, even the word that it used to be called lab-grown meat, there's a connotation that something that is made in the lab is going to be gross or artificial, uh, but it is actually the same biological processes and the same cells uh, that you put into your mouth already, uh, and that it is a real product that is identical. That is probably the biggest thing, because uh, with products outside of cellular agriculture, if I think very personally, back in the day to old school vegetarian products, uh, you hear about classical complaints, about taste or texture or faux meat or terms that get thrown around. Uh, and that is really it, is that these products are identical. Uh, but that misconception, I feel, will be solved as people get to taste it. Yeah, a lot of stuff like this is very much just in the consumer's eye. We're, we're seeing the same thing with a company doing lab-grown diamonds, where it's not cubic zirconia. This is truly the carbon atoms, the exact same process that goes on in nature to make a real diamond. It is a real diamond. It's just created in a lab with artificial conditions, creating that same exact thing that could produce a diamond in nature. And it's a lot of just a challenge for consumers to understand that and to really grasp the exact same atoms that are in this or in that. And I think the same thing is happening with uh, cellular agriculture. Yes, I 100% agree with that. And it's on us in the industry as well to 
make information about this as readily available and as easily accessible as possible uh, for consumers to, to help consumers make that decision. Well, the good news is it definitely feels like this wave has started and will continue at a very rapid clip, kind of like how we saw the world went from not understanding ride sharing to everyone knowing how to use Uber or Lyft in the span of uh, you know, a few years. I feel the same thing is happening in this space, too. So I'm excited to watch it. And I'm very excited for you guys to help enable it. Awesome. Thank you. Yes, I am also very excited and I'm looking forward, looking forward to be able to help this become a reality. Well, Leji, this has been awesome. But the last question I like to ask people is, has there been any piece of advice or words of wisdom you've been given in your life or your professional career that's really stuck with you and that are words that you live by? There are more than a few, to be honest. The one that I think about a lot, especially now, and is the first that comes to mind, is defaulting to action as much as possible. There's so many things, regardless of what industry you're in, even just in life, where you don't know what to do, or something might be dangerous or risky, or it's unclear, or it's upsetting, or anything else that can get in the way of living life or moving forward. But taking that extra step to just default to action, uh, sometimes even regardless of how you feel, to move yourself forward uh, towards what you want to do is probably the most important thing uh, that I am thinking about right now. I love that because it's not only moving yourself forward, ultimately actions what moves society forward. So I think that's a great exactly. thing to keep in the back of our minds always. Awesome. Yes, exactly. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Leji. I'm excited to continue to watch your progress, and I'm sure our listeners will be as well. Thank you.